Let us hear the word of God in a portion of the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And then we shall read a few verses in the first epistle of John. John 17, the 20th verse. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. In 1 John chapter 4, and the 10th verse, 1 John 4, at verse 10, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Thus far, may God help us to come this morning to his holy word, and I want us to turn our thoughts to the 17th chapter of John and the 23rd verse, John 17 and verse 23. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. As we know, brethren, these words are found so close to the end of this unique chapter in the Word of God. And I suppose the feature, more than any other, which makes this chapter unique is the fact that in this chapter we 
are not being addressed. There are no duties or commands that are given to us or to other Christians, but rather we are brought into a position of overhearing communion and conversation within the Godhead. The first verse, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and then we have these 26 verses, so full of amazing statements and words unspeakably great. And if we were only to have had one or two of these words, how wonderful that would have been that we have this long chapter disclosing to us the intercession of our Lord on our behalf. This is truly indeed the Lord's Prayer. And with this chapter before us, there is no Christian who ought to be able to say that he doesn't know the future for himself or for the church, for other Christians, we do. There are many, many things that we do not know and will not know in this world, but we surely believe that what is revealed to us in this chapter is all that we truly need to know for our comfort and joy and peace in this world. Here we are told, you remember, that we are to be kept, not one to be lost. We are to be sanctified through the truth, through God's holy word. We are to have Christ's joy fulfilled in ourselves. We are to be preserved. We are to be progressively experiencing union with the people of God and union with the Son of God. And beyond all this, we are assured that before us is the prospect of beholding the glory of Christ. And to all eternity to have the name of God revealed to us. So that, as the last verse says, the love, the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. I say, brethren, here is a wonderful disclosure of all that we need for our peace in our present warfare. These things are certain. They are not prayed by as you and I pray. We know not what to pray for as we ought. They are prayed by one who knows the mind of the Father, who prays, Father, I will. And here we have a certainty and wonderful assurance of the prospect that is before us in this world and indeed in the world to come. Now, in the words of our text, there is a repetition of what has already been said in the chapter and indeed before in the Gospel of John. And then there is an addition, and it is particularly the addition that I want us to concentrate on, though we shall look at the whole verse. But the addition is a statement which explains why is God doing these great things for his people? Why is it that these petitions are going to be fulfilled? What is the key to understanding why God is doing these things for his church? And the explanation is, in these words of our Lord, it is 
thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That is the supreme explanation. Thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now looking at these words, I want us to notice in the first place that they remind us that God loves his church and people with a special love. We spoke somewhat yesterday on this subject in papers and in discussion perhaps in the evening and I believe that we must be perfectly clear on the fact that the scripture reveals a general universal love of God toward all men and yet that love is not identical with the love which is here spoken of as God's love to the church. The love of God to the church is the same as his love to his son. Believers are here taught that they have this unique possession. Thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. The same love. The very same love is the love which embraces the people of God with Christ himself. Now, that is never spoken of in terms of God's general love and universal compassion. We surely see that general love and universal compassion from the earliest chapters of the Word of God. Genesis chapter 6, we read those extraordinary words, it repented the Lord that he had made man and it grieved him at his heart. The book of Psalms says he is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. The prophecy of Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, has words that we should never forget. The 18th chapter and the 23rd verse, God says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his way and live? And the 33rd chapter, God puts himself on earth. Say unto them, he says to Ezekiel, As I live, saith the Lord, I will not the death of a sinner but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Calvin says on Ezekiel 18.23, this expression of God's will that none should perish, he says, if anyone objects that this is making God act with duplicity, the answer is ready. Although God's will is simple, one, Yet great variety is involved in it as far as our senses are concerned. Besides, it is not surprising that our eyes should be blinded by intense light so that we cannot certainly judge how God wishes all to be saved and yet has devoted all the reprobate to eternal destruction. We, he says, we who are blinded with intense light, we cannot judge how God wishes all to be saved. We look through a glass darkly and we should be content with our measure of intelligence. John Calvin 
when I was in the army in Malaysia as a young man and we were involved in fighting terrorism in the jungle. I was just a young Christian and I remember so clearly one time when a local British official was killed in an ambush by terrorists. The whole community was very distressed. The circumstances of his death were distressing. And uh, to my surprise, our senior officer came to me, surprised because he had no religious interest at all. And he asked me if I would write suitable words for a condolences card to go on a wreath for the grave of this man. I was a little surprised that he'd asked me, and I wrote sort of general words that one might write, found sympathy, and so on. And uh, when I had written this, he brought the card back to me. And he said, he said, can't you say something more? He said, can't we have a text of scripture? First time, first time I'd ever heard him refer to scripture. And you know, I was put in a very considerable quandary. As a young Christian, I have no knowledge whatever of this person's spiritual state. Never met them, never knew them. No reason to take some text of scripture that clearly applied to Christians. And uh, I remember in my perplexity coming across a text I have never seen in the scripture before in the book of Lamentations, the third chapter. We read the beautiful words. He, do, he God, he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. I thought, well, that would be suitable and I wrote it down and it was suitable in the eyes of others. But my friends, how wonderful it is. In this world of sin and evil, death, God does not willingly afflict the children of men. Now, if these things are hinted to us in the Old Testament, how much more wonderfully are they revealed in the incarnate Son of God? We should have no problem at all, surely, when we read such texts as our Lord, looking upon the multitude, moved with compassion moved with love, looking upon a rich young ruler who went away for he had many, many possessions and Jesus, looking upon him, loved him. There should be no problem with such texts. And when he drew near to the city, we read in Luke 19, he wept over it. And Matthew 23 tells us the words that he spoke, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kill us the prophets and stone us them that are sent unto thee. How oft would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathered her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. If this is not the voice of love, brethren, what is it? Our Lord put himself under the law, perfectly obeyed the law. What is that law but the highest expression of love? We are to love our enemies. We are to do good to those that hate us. And why are we to do that? Why, says our Lord, so shall ye be children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Our love is but the faintest reflection of the love that streams from heaven towards poor, guilty, lost men and women. And I do believe we should have no hesitations in speaking of the wonder, the reality, the truth, 
the marvel that God does love sinners everywhere and calls them to himself. We must never say that there is no love in God except for the church, except for the elect. We must not say that. But at the same time, brethren, we have in inspired scripture this indication that the love which God has to his own is a love that has this unique feature to it. It is identical with the love to his son. God sees poor believing sinners as part of Christ, united to Christ, embraced in the same love. Abigail said to David, the soul of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And that's what happens, isn't it, in our salvation. We are bound up in Christ. And the same love that embraces Christ is the love that comes to us. It has the very same nature to it. Christ was loved from all eternity. The next verse in this chapter tells us, Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And so with believers. In love God predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Before the foundation of the world. Love without beginning. Love without an end. God the Father's love to his Son will never fail. Will never wane. And the love which embraces us is the same love which will be infinite and to all eternity. What a wonder it is, my friends. One day we shall stand for the last time in a pulpit. One, one day we shall come for the last time to a conference such as this. The outward man perisheth. We live in a world that is passing away, that is growing weary. And in the midst of this world, the word of God tells us that though the mountains depart and the hills shall be removed, my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. We are embraced as the people of God with the same love. And surely that is the emphasis of the apostle when he says that in those words we know so well at the end of Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is that union with Christ in the same love that makes that love so certain that neither presently nor ever to eternity will believers be separated from it. And what shall we say if someone asks us, how is it that God has only embraced his people with this special love? How do we explain that? And the answer, of course, is, as every Christian knows, we can't explain it. We do not know why God should have loved us. I stand amazed, says the hymn writer, in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean we do not know it is something altogether higher and beyond our understanding but what we do know is this 
that this same love stands ready to embrace every poor and needy sinner who comes to Jesus Christ. That we do know. That we must preach. Here is a full and eternal salvation ready. And no one will come to Christ and find that he is not delighted to receive them and to give them this same love as we, by his grace, know today. Now, I want us to think for a little about the characteristics of this special love as uh, we have it indicated in this verse. And the first thing I want to say on that point is that this special love is a love which cannot be satisfied without nearness to the one who is loved. That, of course, is a characteristic of love even as we know it on the human plane. We begin to look forward to getting home, I'm sure, because there are people we love there. And love wants nearness and union. And here in this text, that very fact is revealed. Notice the connection between the 23rd verse and the preceding verse, verse 22. It's one unity. The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is the glory which has been given to Christ and which he says, I have given them. What is that? Well, as I understand it, it means this. As Christ took to himself our nature, Son of God became incarnate. There dwelt in him and with him the very presence of his Father. He was not alone. The only begotten Son that dwells in the bosom of the Father. The glory of Christ incarnate was glory of indwelling deity, the presence of the Father with him. And I believe that the glory which he has given to us is the glory of God indwelling us by his Son. And I believe that the 23rd verse explains then further, verse 22. I in them, that's the glory, I in them and thou in me, as the Father is in the Son. So Christ is one and united with his people. Christ dwells in the heart of his people. He makes his residence in our innermost being. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the habitation of God through the Spirit. And why? Because thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And it's the very characteristic of love to be united and to seek nearness to the one that is loved. And the love of the Father that led him to be so united with his incarnate Son is the same love that leads the Saviour to be one with his people. I in them and thou in me. And that, brethren, surely is the explanation of what was to happen when this prayer was offered and our Lord went out to Gethsemane and Calvary. When, before we were Christians, we were blind, were we not, to the meaning of the cross. We may have heard it preached many times, 
And yet it meant nothing to us until we understood this truth that what Jesus was doing when he went to Calvary was vicarious. It was for the sin, for the penalty, for the condemnation of others that he went. The chapter says it so clearly. For their sakes, he says, I am sanctified. That is, set apart for death and suffering. And uh, as our Lord goes to Calvary, these are the words that he speaks, I in them. And at Calvary we have this amazing mystery of apparent disunity. That is to say, our Saviour racked in his body and spirit, able to say, all my bones are out of joint. His body and soul finally separated from each other. And in the midst of that brokenness and disunity, there is perfect union. Christ with his people. Christ one with his people. This is my body which is broken for you. And Christ dying, as Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. The purpose of our Lord's death was none other purpose that we might be made nigh to him and to God forever. It's love which seeks nearness and union with those who are loved. And of course that is uh, the explanation of heaven, is it not? Those dear friends who are no longer with us, who are in Christ, we know where they are. They are with Christ, which is far better. That is what heaven is, is it not? It is union perfected. The 24th verse, that they may behold my glory. What is the certainty of the resurrection of the body? It is that Christ loves his people. And I will, he says, I will raise him up at the last day. The 6th chapter of John. The union with Christ, of Christ with his people, is the mystery that underlines our, underlies our whole salvation. And behind it is this love. The book of Revelation says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And they shall see his face, and his servants shall serve him, and his name shall be in their foreheads. What does all that language mean but that this union begun on earth is coming to a perfection that is beyond our present understanding? Uh, that then is the first observation I want to make on the characteristic of this special love. It is love that seeks union and nearness. You know perhaps the words of Roland Hill, the evangelist of the 18th century. And when I'm to die, he says, receive me, I'll cry. For Jesus has loved me, I cannot tell why. But this I can find. We too are so joined, he'll not live in glory and leave me behind. We too are so joined, he'll not live in glory and leave me behind. That surely is biblical truth. Now, the second characteristic of this special love, the only other I want to mention here, 
is that it has transforming power wherever it enters. We are not talking about words, but realities. And what happens when Christ is dwelling in men and women? Well, what happens is that God's love is dwelling in them. And what happens then? Well, where love is present, there is uh, an effect that is irresistible. And that is what our Lord is speaking about here. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect, that they may be made complete in one. Unity. God's presence. Unity. Love. Neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female, where Christ comes to dwell, love is present and that love unites with a wonderful power and grace. And uh, our Lord is saying that the purpose of that unity is not an end in itself, but it is going to demonstrate, declare, thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. As the unity of the people of God is seen, over that unity is a yet greater truth to be beheld, and that is, here is divine love poured forth upon this people. Now, brethren, isn't this a tremendous thing? What relevance it has to evangelism? You remember when Tertullian was converted those many, many centuries ago and he wrote as a young Christian his apology and he described how the temples were being deserted and the churches were being filled and from all across the Greek and Roman world the gospel of Christ was advancing. And how does he explain it? Well, he says, the world is convinced that God loves Christians. The world says, behold how these Christians love one another. There's something irresistible and seen and convincing. The very thing that our Lord is speaking of here. Exactly what happened in the highlands of Scotland in the rebels of the 18th century up until that time. Clans were divided against clans. People lived in fortresses and castles and towers. You never knew when you were going to be attacked. When the gospel came, clans fell and unity came. The transforming power of this love wherever it enters. I love that anecdote that I'm sure you've heard of Harry Ironside, the brethren evangelist teacher in San Francisco at the beginning of this century, taking a walk one Sunday afternoon and coming across a Salvation Army open-air meeting and being asked if he would, uh, when he was observed in the crowd, asked if he would come and give his testimony, and Ironside did. I'm sure many of you know this story, but I like it, and I think we should uh, often repeat it. And so Ironside gave his testimony, and as he was doing so, he saw a man at the back writing on a bit of paper, and before he had finished, the man came forward and pushed this into his hand. And on the back of the bit of paper was the man's name that Ironside Ironside recognized as a, a leading humanist, secularist, antagonist of the church. And on the other side, the man had written an invitation to debate with Ironside Next Sunday afternoon in the Academy of Science at four o'clock, I'll pay all expenses, says the man, will you do it? Debate with me, Christianity versus agnosticism. So Ironside read out the little note and said he'd be very glad to meet this man and to debate as he 
suggested, but with one condition, he said, just to prove that this is a genuine invitation. He said, I'd like him to be able to bring with him a man and and a woman who can give testimony that once their lives were broken and empty and with no vision, no future, no hope, no strength, and to be able to say that they heard this message of agnosticism and it transformed them. gave them a new life, a new outlook altogether. He said, let him be able to bring two such people, and he said, I will bring, I think he said, 60 men and women who will be able to say what Christ has done for them. And then Ironside turned to the Salvation Army lady, and he said, and could you bring some too? I'll bring 40, she said. Well, you can uh, judge by this time the man was backing off his invitation and uh, it didn't go forward. But in all seriousness, you know, we talk about why the gospel makes little impact and we have many reasons. We talk about secular thought and evolution and the effect of entertainment and a thousand and one other things. But what about this, brethren? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if he have love one to another. He that dwelleth in love, says John, dwelleth in God, and God in him. And our Lord is saying here that this divine indwelling is in order that there may be unity, and yet beyond that, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, Before I close, I want to just say a few words more particularly on the relevance of this to us in the work of the ministry. My thought is, brethren, what a change, what a practical change would be wrought in us if we had a deeper assurance of God's love to us. What a change would be wrought in us. And uh, let me give you the testimony of a few Christian men and women, or perhaps simply men at this moment, on this point. You think of the evangelist Stephen being stoned to death, dying with words of intercession for his persecutors, with words of love for them. Why? Because, says Luke, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's what's happened through history. 1536, William Tyndale died in very similar circumstances as a martyr in Belgium and died praying for his persecutors. And William Tyndale says, if we be in Christ, we work for no worldly purpose, but for love, as Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. We are otherwise minded than when Peter drew his sword to fight for Christ. We are ready to suffer with Christ and to lose life and all for our very enemies to bring them to Christ. If we be in Christ, we are minded like to Christ. Christ is all to the Christian man. 
Christ is the cause why I love thee, why I am ready to do the uttermost of my power for thee, and why I pray for thee. And as long as the cause abides, so long lasts the effect, even as it is always day, as long as the sun shines. Do therefore the worst thou canst do unto me. Take away my goods, take away my good name, Yet as long as Christ remains in my heart, so long I love thee, not a whit the less, and so long art thou as dear to me as my own soul, and so long am I ready to do thee good for thine evil. For Christ desires it of me, and has deserved it of me, and thine unkindness compared with his kindness is nothing at all yet it is swallowed up like a little smoke in a mighty wind and is no more to be seen or thought on. William Tyndale. John Bunyan has a wonderful treatment of the saint's knowledge of Christ. I think it's volume two of his works and uh, he pleads with ministers and pastors to make this their great study, their chief study. And then he says, the men who do that are the men who sweeten churches. Let him speak of love who is taken with love, that is captivated with love, that is carried away with love. If this man speak of it, his speaking signifies something. The powers and bands of love are upon him and he shows all that he knows and he shows to all that he knows what he is speaking of. Samuel Pierce of Birmingham, close friend of Carey and Andrew Fuller, Spurgeon referred to them yesterday, these men who went down the mine as it were, out into the mission fields of the world. Samuel Pierce never went, he died as a young man, but he was an inspiration to the whole circle. And Andrew Fuller writes his biography and he puts his finger upon what he regards as the key to this man's whole life. He says, Few were more successful in converting sinners unto God than the late excellent Mr. Pierce. His usefulness in this respect was rather extraordinary. In what consistent way is this to be accounted for? The governing principle, beyond all doubt, was holy love. His religion was that of the heart. Almost everything he saw or heard or read was converted to feeding this divine flame. Every subject that passed through his hands seemed to be cast into this mould of holy love. And so he goes on. Jonathan Edwards says this, True grace is no dull, inactive, inefficient principle. And he says, why it isn't? Because it comes from Christ dwelling in us. And when Christ is dwelling in us, he says, divine love is the sum of all true grace, which is a holy flame enkindled in the soul. And it is by this especially that a minister of the gospel is a burning light. By this especially. A minister that is so has his soul ravished and kindled with heavenly flame and his heart burns with love to Christ 
and with ardent love to the souls of men and desires for their salvation. In uh, Britain in the 18th century, as many of you know, the Great Awakening in Wales began in 1735 and it began as God stirred this very grace afresh in the hearts of his people. And one of the leaders, Howell Harris, was in a church tower at a little place called Langasty when God met him and revealed himself to him in a special way. And this is what Harris says. I knew that God loved me and were it not for the love I then tasted I should have given up. I never could have gone against the current but love, he says, love fell in showers on my soul so that I could scarcely contain myself. In other words, he was facing tremendous opposition, persecution. How did he endure it joyfully? Well, he says, love fell like showers on my soul. John B. Smith of Hamden, Sydney, Virginia, Great Awakening of 1788-89 in uh, Virginia. Moses Hogue says, I still can see him as the accredited ambassador of the great King of Kings. With every feature and every muscle of his face seemed to bespeak a soul on fire. And what was the fire? Well, Hogue goes on to say, the Calvinistic doctrines were conspicuous in his sermons. He varied his subjects as occasion required. Sometimes he preached the terrors of the law. But, but, he dwelt more on the love of God to a lost world. Holy love. And uh, let us not be hesitant to remember what happened to D.L. Moody in New York when God turned him from being an ordinary pedestrian preacher to someone with a burning heart for the salvation of men and women. One day, says Moody, in the city of New York, I cannot describe it, I seldom refer to it, it is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. Sermons were the same. The effect was so different. And then Moody says, I would not be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me the whole world. These and many other testimonies you can think of, brethren, surely bring us back to our text. It seems to me we live in a time when the powers of darkness are peculiarly active, would seek in many, many ways to oppose the advance of the cause of Christ. Satan knows that the kind of books that are on sale here today and on sale from other publishers in many different places, he knows the history of these books. He has seen what has happened when these truths have caught fire and nations have been turned round. He knows that. We're approaching the 200th anniversary of the, great, the Second Great Awakening here in America, 1798. The devil knows all these things. And he is 
busy to discredit the whole idea of awakening and revival, to discredit all experiences, to make the whole thing look like wild, mad fanaticism. That's what he's doing at the moment. And at the same time as he's doing that, he's working to disrupt the unity of true believers, to disrupt ministerial relationships, to do everything he can to hinder us from standing together in the cause of Jesus Christ and visibly showing to the world the wonder of divine love. The devil is at work in all these areas. And uh, surely then we come back to the points that have been raised many times in prayer and uh, in our meetings. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Let us persist. Let us persevere. Let us not be discouraged. Let us recognize the wiles of the devil. Let us be certain that the word of God is true. The only one thing I hesitated over in our dear brother's prayer before we began was the reference to another generation. We pray it will be true in another generation, but why not in our generation too? Perhaps that's just selfish, and dear Walt is not selfish. But, but uh, let us be urgent, brethren. Let us not be discouraged. Let us believe that we are loved by this wonderful Saviour, and we are united to him forever. Shall we pray? We pray for light and understanding and truth. We thank thee for the knowledge that we are in thy hands. We pray that thou wouldst help us more and more to rest in thee, to trust in thee. Deliver us, we pray, from every form of sinful unbelief and doubt. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, for thy promised presence. We thank thee that here, together as brethren this week, we can know and believe that thou art here. And we pray that thou would lift us up and carry us forward and help us each one to be faithful and to be fruitful to thee. We pray indeed that thou wouldst revive thy work and pour out thy spirit upon us and that we might know thee and glorify thee and serve thee. Hear us, we pray. Pardon all our sins as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.